Let's bow together. God, that's so true. You are um, the risen king. You are mighty to save. And we're so thankful for the time we got uh, just over the past few weeks to celebrate that, that you came to earth and you lived the life we couldn't live and died the death that we should have died. So we just celebrate that. Thank you for gathering such a, a diverse group of people from all across the triangle. We're doing six services at three different campuses. And that's all because of you and for your name's sake and because of your glory. So uh, be with us this morning as we go through the Bible and learn about you. And I pray that as we walk out of here this morning, we would be changed. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. How's everybody doing? I was polite. How's everybody doing? All right. You guys have a good Christmas? Yes. Get some good gifts. I got um, two books. I got a, a, um, and a nose hair trimmer, which is pretty cool. I'm pretty pumped about that. Um, my wife's idea. So uh, it is that time of year again. Christmas is behind us. 2012's in the past, 2013's ahead. And it's the time of year we all make this list called our New Year's resolutions. That's right. How many of you guys have started that already? You overachievers. Okay. Uh, some people are good at this. Um, my friend Derek, uh, Derek Sisterin, he's the um, director of stewardship here at Hove. You may know him as Mr. Derek. But he's really, really good at this. He makes a list every single year. Uh, in fact, if you go and track him down this weekend and say, hey, Derek, let me see your list, he'll pull out his wallet and there's a crumpled piece of paper with all of his goals for 2012 checked off. Um, so he, he makes this list of goals and then he does something crazy. He uh, creates a plan on how to achieve those goals. So one of his goals was to run a marathon this year. So he said, okay, I got to get a practice regimen, which he did. I got to get a running partner, which he did. And he ran that stinking marathon this year. Uh, so some people are really good at it. My daughters are just now getting into it. I have a, a four-year-old and a three-year-old, and I asked them, what do you want to do this year? Do you have any resolutions? Do you want to do something cool? And my four-year-old said, I want to be a kid all year long, so that's good. And then my three-year-old, it's kind of a toss-up for her. Uh, she wants to be either a bad guy who is pink, who bites people when they're on the potty, or, or a teacher. So it's kind of a toss-up. Um, I'm not a bad parent, I promise. Uh, I like to make a list, too. I'm a little bit different from Derek. I really like to make the New Year's resolution list. I get pumped up. Uh, I get my fancy paper out. I get my nicest fountain pen because I'm a dork, and I ink that bad boy up. And I make this nice bulleted list with these big goals and stuff. And then I post it on the wall of my cubicle, and I utterly forget about it for the next 12 months. Um, any of you in that boat? Anybody not accomplish everything you wanted to in 2012? Wouldn't it be great if there was some way to get rid of that little nagging guilt and shame that maybe would, we wasted 2012? I mean, wouldn't it be great if there was someone who kind of understood our good intentions? I was going to read all the classics unless I watched less uh, TV, but, you know, my job got crazy, family stuff got crazy. I really wanted to do this. Wouldn't it be great if someone uh, would fight for us in that? Well, I have good news. As I was watching television over the Christmas holiday, I came across this commercial. This guy's locally based in Raleigh, and I think he's our guy. So why don't you turn to the side screen? Hi, I'm JT Kingsley. I'm a lawyer, and I'm here to fight for you. Are you sick of making New Year's resolutions only to feel shame, guilt, and remorse for not keeping them? The law offices of Kingsley, Kingsley, and Kingsley will fight for you. Have you been trying to be less lazy and more productive, but you keep finding yourself in your mom's basement playing video games and munching on snacks? It's time to sue. I'll sue your mom for letting you into the basement. I'll sue Value City Furniture for making that couch too comfortable. I'll sue Xbox for making amazing video games and Cheetos for making delicious snacks. It's time to 
to Sue. Do you struggle with gossip? Have you tried to stop talking so badly about other people only to find that you're doing it more? It's time to sue. I'll sue the people that you're gossiping about because if they weren't doing what they were doing, you wouldn't be gossiping about them. Cold, hard cash. Do you feel bad because you haven't been praying as much as you want to or you haven't read the Bible all the way through? It's time to sue. Look at this thing. It's far too big. I will sue your pastors for making you feel bad. I will sue your small group for making you pray in public. And I will sue Zondervan for making this thing entirely too big. I'm JT Kingsley. I'm a lawyer. And I'm here to fight for you. Wouldn't that be awesome if we could do that? Yes. That would be amazing. Unfortunately, that's a completely fake commercial we made last week. Uh, we have received a few calls to that number, actually. Um, so, <laughs> thankfully, God's Word is going to tell us all we need to know to make 2013 the best year ever. So, we're going to be in Philippians 3 uh, this morning. It's an amazing chapter. A lot of times when you read the Bible, uh, the biblical authors come off as a little uh, authoritative, right? A little... Um, uh, they give us really deep theology and doctrine about God and kind of commands to do and, and advice of stuff to stay away from and stuff to pursue. Um, but, but rarely do you get a glimpse inside the heart and the mind and the inner workings of the biblical authors. Well, we get to do that in Philippians 3 with Paul. And so we're gonna, he's going to be a little vulnerable for us here this morning. It's like he's off the stage. He's not preaching. He's not teaching. He's not crafting a sermon. We're just sharing coffee with Paul. And he's going to give us advice on how to make 2013 the best year that it can possibly be. That his instructions are going to be a tad bit different than what our culture would have us do. All right? A lot of New Year's resolutions are to uh, eat less junk food and eat healthy. Uh, to get in the gym and get fit and lose weight. To... Uh, to read more books and to watch less TV, to floss and brush your teeth every night, stuff like that. Because our culture thinks that for some reason, if we would outwardly achieve all these things, if we could just conquer and check off all these goals on our list, then we would finally be a productive person, then we would feel good about us, and then maybe God would actually like us. That's kind of the mindset here. But Paul is going to give us a different perspective on this whole thing. Um, so uh, you have to know, in Philippians 3, at this point in history, Paul's nearing the end of his life. Uh, he's been in ministry for about 35 to 40 years, and it's been an amazing ministry. Over the course of that ministry, he has uh, traveled the whole known world on three missionary journeys. So three times he's been through the whole known world, preaching the gospel, planning churches, raising up leaders, uh, writing letters, giving instructions. And it hasn't been an easy life. It's been kind of a hard life. He's had to go without money. He's had to go without food. At some points he had to go without clothing, which is kind of awkward. Um, and he's been beaten severely a few times. He's been shipwrecked. He's been uh, bitten by a snake one time. Uh, and uh, he knows that in every single town that he goes into, there's this group called the Judaizers that are going to chase him out of town. And so he never knows uh, when he's going to uh, meet death. And so at this point in his life, he's actually been arrested by Rome. They put him on a ship, sail him to the capital, and he's in a prison cell. Uh, prison cell, And this is where he starts cranking out all these New Testament letters that we have. And so here's Paul sitting in a prison cell. He's an old man. His ministry is pretty much over. And because of that, a lot of the, a lot of the letters that he writes have this same theme going on. Uh, kind of the, the preciousness of time. 
because he looks back, like even my daughters are growing up so quick, he just realizes the preciousness of time and how quick time goes by. And that's good for us to hear. It's good for us to feel the weight of passing time, especially in our culture. Because I guarantee every single person out there just assumes, I'm going to make it to 90. I'm going to make it to 95. And so we don't value and cherish the moments, the months, the years that we have. Instead, we kind of use them as just these stepping stones to the next big thing. Now, they're just a way, a tool to get to the next job opportunity, the next uh, rung on the corporate ladder, the next relationship, the next degree. And we don't really feel how precious time actually is. But, but um, Paul knows this. Uh, consistently in the Old Testament, what does the Bible say about life? It's a vapor. It's here for a moment, and then it's gone. It's gone quickly. And so time is, is this precious thing. We don't know how much we're going to have of it. Uh, every single year we do funerals here at Hope, and rarely is it for the 80, the 90, the 100-year-olds. It's for young uh, guys and girls just like me and you. So we don't know if we have tomorrow. We don't know if we have next month. And the, the crazy thing about time is that once it's gone, we can never get it back. We can never, ever receive it. And so um, this is good for us. This is healthy for us to, to kind of feel the weight of that, the preciousness of time. That, that's why we have this instinct to make goals, to make resolutions in the new year. Because we, we instinctively know that time is precious. So it's good what we're going to do this weekend. And, and there's no better person to give us advice than Paul. Because he lived his life every single day as if it was his last. Just all out abandoned, no matter the struggles, no matter the sufferings, he pressed on towards the goal. So Paul's going to kind of um, give us his advice on how to not waste 2013. And that's about all I can promise you. Uh, if you came for seven steps on how to win friends and influence people, or get rich quick, or lose 10 pounds in 10 days, I got nothing for you. Um, but I promise you that if you hear these truths and see the way that God's truth the implications it has for your lives, that, that we'll come back 12 months from now and look back on 2013 and we'll say, that was a pretty good year. That was a pretty good year. So uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 4, if you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. And in the previous verses, Paul's been kind of calling out these false teachers. And Paul's well acquainted with these rascals. Um, for 30 or 35 years, every time Paul would go into a city to plant a church or to share the gospel, he'd go in and he'd say, hey, gather around. Uh, here's some bad news. You're sinful. You're broken. You can't fix yourself. You can never be good enough for God to love you. But here's the good news. Jesus Christ lived the life that you couldn't live. He died the death that you should have died. And when you put your faith in him, God credits Christ's righteousness to you and Jesus pays for your sin. And all it takes is faith. Just faith. Just believe in Jesus, and that's how you're saved. Then Paul would leave town, and these false teachers would come in, and they'd say, you know, what Paul said is kind of cool. Yes, it is by faith. That's how you first get saved. But you know, faith without works is dead, right? And so in order to keep your salvation, you have to add on all these other items. And in those days, it was to become a Jew, uh, to be circumcised, to obey the ceremonial law, to observe all the holidays and the festivals. There were these list people. So, so if they were teaching this weekend on the best year ever, they would come in and they would say, Hope Community Church, um, it's time to talk about the new year and your New Year's resolutions. So we as a church staff have gotten together and we've compiled a 150 uh, bulleted list for you that you need to have completed by the spring. So go and run that marathon if you want. Read those books and make sure you have these done. And then know that in the summer we're going to give you 200 more items. So these were uh, these rule-following list keepers. They, they believed that if you, if you would perform properly, if you achieved enough, then God would like you. 
So, so your identity, your contentment, and God's acceptance of you is rooted in your performance and your ability to do good stuff consistently. And look at what Paul says. He launches into them in verse 4. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, and as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. And this is, this is Paul pretty much bragging right here. He's boasting. These are some bold words, but what Paul's saying here is, if you want to see an achiever, if you want to see someone who has a productive life, look at me. I'm that guy. He's saying, I was baptized as an infant. I've never missed a single church service. Uh, my, my mom and dad, they're the social elite. We can trace our heritage back to kings and queens. I went to the best schools you could go to. I was taught by the best teachers, went to an Ivy League uh, college, got the best top marks. I've memorized whole books of the Bible, can quote them verbatim. Uh, my character, my conduct is above reproach. If you want to look at someone who is productive, who has achieved stuff in life, look at me. And then look what he says in verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. What Paul says here is take all those things, all my achievements, all my trophies, all my degrees, and match them up with knowing and experiencing Jesus Christ, and they don't even compare. They don't even compare. He says take all that stuff and match it to knowing Christ, and it doesn't compare. And it's interesting that he uses the term loss here three times. Three times. Now, if you're studying the Bible, that's important if you ever see a repeated word. So I went back, and the only other time that this word is used, it's in Acts, which is kind of the story of the early church and Paul. And it's near the end of Acts uh, on Paul's journey to Rome, where he's now sitting and writing this letter. So when Luke recounts this story, the story goes that uh, Paul gets arrested, he's being taken to Rome, he gets on a ship, and he kind of feels a bad omen. Like red sails in the morning, sailors take warning. I don't know what the nautical terms were, but he, he had a bad feeling about this. So he went to the, um, the captain and the crew and said, there's going to be a bad storm. We should dock for a few weeks and kind of ride this storm out. Otherwise, we're not going to make it. And the captain's like, no way. We got a truckload of gold and silver and grain. When we reach our destination, we're going to be rich. And so they decide to brave the storm. And we know what happens. The winds start to pick up. They get swept out to sea, and sure enough, the winds and the waves start crashing, and, and the water starts coming on board, and the ship begins to sink and sink and sink. And Paul says, in order to save their lives, that we experience the loss of much cargo. And so back in those days, what they would do is they'd take that cargo, no matter how uh, worthy it was, no matter how, how many riches it contained, to save their lives, they would toss it overboard. So they took the silver, the gold, the grain, uh, all the stuff that was on board. They even cut down the sail. They cut off the steering wheel. They cut down everything and threw it overboard so that the ship would rise in the water and the waves couldn't crash over the side. And, and if you held on to that cargo, no matter how important, uh, no matter how much it was worth, it, you wouldn't reach your destination. You would sink. And what Paul says is that our achievements, our, our addiction to this thing that we call performance can be like that. No matter how worthwhile or important we think these achievements can be, if we hold on to them too tightly, 
that can actually weigh us down and stop us from reaching our destination. And, and Paul makes our destination for 2013 crystal clear. It's to know Christ. It's to know Christ, to experience uh, the transforming power of Jesus. That's our goal. And in this weird way, if we have this mindset that I have to perform in order to do that, that can actually weigh us down. That can stop us from reaching our destination. And Paul has firsthand experience with this. Remember a few sentences ago, what did, what did he say he was? A Pharisee? And we know the Pharisees. That means Paul's mom and dad and brother and sister and family members and teachers and community. They were all Pharisees. They were the overachievers, the rule keepers, the list makers. They were, they were so productive in their lives. And we read about them in the Gospels. Did they know Jesus? Did they know God? No, not at all. Even when Jesus came down in the flesh and taught them face to face and performed miracles in their midst, they still did not know who Jesus was. Look at how strongly Paul feels about this. He says, I consider them, I consider these achievements, I consider them rubbish, trash, garbage. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead. He says this mindset is rubbish. And what Paul, what Paul has learned here is this truth that just set him free. And the truth is... You can never, ever be good enough. You can never be good enough. No matter what you achieve, no matter what your degrees or trophies are, you can never be good enough, especially never good enough for God. That's why Jesus came to die, right? If we could be good enough for God, Jesus would still be up in heaven. But, but he left heaven and came to earth and died for us because we can't be good enough for him. And we certainly can never be good enough for ourselves we can achieve all that we want to, but there's always going to be something right out of our grasp. But what Paul says is that this mindset, that if I outwardly do and perform and achieve, then I would be happy with myself, then God would be happy with me. Paul calls it useless. It's garbage. It's trash. It needs to be thrown away. And in another letter, he compares it to a, a shadow boxing, to beating against the wind. All this strain, all this energy, this blood, sweat, and tears, and, and it's useless. You're wasting time. You're not doing anything. And Paul says this mindset can actually be dangerous. It can keep you from knowing Christ. And here's how it works. I'm not saying these things are bad things. Bible study, prayer, going to church, awesome. Getting in shape, reading books, awesome. But, but here's because we're broken, because we're sinful, what tends to happen is this. For the, for the type A people, the worker bees, the disciplined ones, uh, come January, you'll check off that first list on your resolutions and you'll start to feel good about yourself. And then come February or March, you check off a few more, you start to feel really good about yourself. And come summertime, your list is done, you're already making a new list, and you start to look around and you're like, what's up with these slackers? Right? It's not this hard. Just open up the Bible and read it all the way through in three days like I did last month. It's not that hard, you can do this. And you start to judge others. And then you start to have uh, this dangerous thought, I'm a pretty good person deep down, you know. I'm pretty good. I think I got this whole thing. And then even though you would never say this out loud, this is what you think inside. I don't need a Savior. I got this thing. 
thank you, Jesus, for dying for me and getting me off on the right foot, but I got it from now. I can fix myself. I have no need of a Savior. That's where the danger is. And see, our culture is so good at reinforcing this. Our American culture, especially our church culture. I know we have a lot of former Catholics. Uh, that's awesome. Confirmation is kind of the same thing I'm going to be talking about. But um, in the Protestant church, it's a little bit different. If you grew up in church, there's these, these kids clubs. Kind of like Awanas. But when I was growing up, it was a Bible study club. A Bible, mem- Bible memory club. And so you go the first week. And if you memorize like John 3.16, then you get this pin. And it goes on this green, I don't know why it was, a green felt vest every single time. Like these little Christian elves running around everywhere. Um, but they give you this pin, and then you come back the next week, and if you memorize John 3.17, you got another pin. And if you did that for a month, you got another pin. Did it for a whole quarter, you got some more pins. You did it for a whole year, and you like an, an office space, you're just flared out. You got way too much flare going on. You got an ice cream party, you're pumped. And that doesn't stop. Right? We, we bring that over into our adult lives. I guarantee if you're a Christ follower here this morning, on the top of your list is to read the Bible more, to pray more, to study more, to get into a small group, to serve more, to go to church more. And, and those things aren't bad things. But it can easily be this mindset that in 2013, I'm going to read the Bible all the way through, check that bad boy off, and then move on to something else. You can have this mentality that in 2013, I am going to conquer Christianity. I'm going to accomplish discipleship. And that's crazy talk. You'll never check that off your list. You can never do that. You always need a Savior. And here's what I'm slowly learning. Growing up, that's what I wanted. I wanted to know Christ. And maybe you're not a Christ follower here this morning. Uh, Maybe you have been for a few years, but none of us really know how to define that. What does knowing Jesus mean? And so in my mind, it was knowing some facts about him kind of fitting in Christian culture, uh, being comfortable in the same room with them. And so I read my Bible. Um, I uh, went to a Bible school. I got my major in biblical studies, got my master's in biblical studies. And I read the Bible. I read hard books about the Bible. I knew facts about Jesus. I prayed a lot. I worshiped a lot. And I thought that I knew Jesus. But but look at how um, Paul describes knowing. I want to know Christ. Literally, that term is to experience Christ. It's to know Christ through personal experience of him. And what, what Paul's getting at here is that when Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago, he didn't come and say, all right, I'm here, Son of God's here, all right? Let everybody come here, get in the room. I'm about to unveil uh, the mystery that's been kept hidden for ages, the mysterious 14-step plan to get you all to heaven, okay? So take out your pad and, and pen and take some notes and if you do these 14 things, you can fix yourself. You won't be broken anymore. Sin won't be a problem. You can get to heaven. Now, I'm going to jet out of here in about three years. Uh, so make sure people know about me. Kind of celebrate me a few times a year. But if you do these 14 things, you'll be cool. I'll see you in heaven. Peace out. Now, that's not what Jesus said. When Jesus came to earth, he says, listen, you can't fix yourself. He already gave us the 10-step plan, the Ten Commandments. How'd that work out? Not very well. So he said, I came to fix things. You can't do this on your own. That's why I came. I came to bring life from death, to fix what was broken, to do away with sin, to to bring beauty from ashes. I came to uh, raise the dead to life. I came to to give sight to the blind, to heal the sick, to to proclaim liberty or, or to release those that were in bondage to sin. And Jesus doesn't say, here's what you should do in order to accomplish that. He says, here I am. I'm the one that does that. And that's why Paul says this. He says, 
I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, Paul says, I want to know you in such a way that I die to my sin and I begin to live a new life in you. He says, in the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Why did Christ suffer here on earth? Why did he die? To do away with the power of sin. And Paul says, I want to have so much fellowship with you that, that I can see my pride, my judgmentalism, my lust, my, my, my false humility rising to the surface of my heart and just getting rid of that. That's how I want to know Christ, to know the transforming power of Jesus. That's what the goal of 2013 is. It's not to take all this good stuff, all these achievements, and to come to God and say, God, look how much I love you and know about you and, and feel comfortable in your presence. Knowing Christ is to take all those good things and, and to come to God and say, God, I got some pretty cool stuff going on. I got a prayer life. I got Bible reading. I got all this serving. But, but this year, I'm going to set that aside and instead of bringing that to you, I'm going to bring you myself. I'm going to bring you my heart and my emotions and my affections and my hopes and my dreams and my relationships and my marriage and my children. I'm going to bring all that to you because the truth is I can't do anything without them. They're broken. And I so desperately need to experience you because I need a Savior. So cleanse me. Change me, transform me. I don't just want to know you. I, I want to be like you in 2013. That's what knowing Jesus is like. You see, none of these achievements are bad if they help you know Christ and experience Christ. But if you cling to them, a lot of times they, they can stop you from knowing Christ. And, and the truth is, for the type A people, for uh, the disciplined ones, um, you can run three marathons this year and your marriage can still be failing because of selfishness and immaturity and pride, right? You can read all the classics there are and not watch TV all year and your kids can still feel unloved and detached. Uh, you can get as fit and as sh in shape as you want um, and you can still be addicted to pornography or alcohol or drugs or eating disorders or body image issues. But Jesus Christ came to transform you. <laughs> you can know him this year. You can pursue that. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Now, he switches, uh, switches um, train of thought in verse 12. And he begins to speak to the type B people. Uh, type B, C, D, I think I'm like a type F people. So for the, the failures out there... Um, who can't really accomplish much, this is what Paul's going to say to us. And he, here's what I know this morning. Uh, for some of you in this room, 2012 was a banner year. It was a great year. You made a whole bunch of money. You had some good time with your wife or kids or family. had a good time at school, a uh, good time in college, made some good grades. All in all, pretty good. But, but what I know is that for a lot of us here this morning, 2012 uh, kind of turned out like every other year. Kind of said some things you shouldn't have said kind of made some mistakes, maybe wasted a little bit of time there, and there's some guilt, there's some shame, there's some remorse here. And, and the reason is, I, I think that's where I am this year. Um, the reason you feel that way, it's, it's because we have the exact same mindset Paul talked about. 
that if I could just perform enough or achieve enough, then I would like me, other people would like me, and God would like me. The difference is the type A people can do it, and we just stink at doing stuff. Um, and this shame and this guilt is this tricky thing. Because there's, there's such a thing as holy guilt. Is there not? There is such a thing as feeling rightfully um, s- sorry for your sin, of weeping for your sin. That's good. That's healthy. We should do that. But in my life, that shame and that guilt kind of moves beyond that into this unhealthy pattern. Um, I don't know if you've heard about me or heard my story at all, but man, I'm a screw up. Uh, I made so many mistakes in my life. Um, you'd just be surprised. I told you everything. Uh, just the amount of times I got kicked out of school. I mean, suspended from school, not like in my uh, dramatic middle school years, but like in kindergarten. Get kicked out of school. Who does that? I do. Uh, to this day, I cannot step foot on a Union County public school bus. Who knew? <laughs> I know. My little secret. Um, in college, I had a full-ride scholarship, and I lost it. I went to a Christian school for drinking, lost my full-ride scholarship. And even, even this year, this month, this week, just so many mistakes with my wife and missed opportunities with my kids. I am well acquainted with my sin and my brokenness. And I, I know about it. And in my life, what happens is I, I feel shame and I feel guilt for, for those mistakes. And what I'll do is my first inclination is to, to run away from God and to run away from other people. Just to kind of hide for a little bit. Uh, so that I, I kind of, I want to make up for that mistake. I want to do good deeds and rack up those attaboys and, and accomplish something so I can come back to God and come back to those people in my life and say, look, I know I did that, but, but you can accept me now because I did this. Um, but I can never do that. <laughs> I can never clean myself up. I can never make myself acceptable enough. And so I begin to, to hide from God more and to hide from other people because in my thought, if they, if they knew what went on in my heart, if they knew what went on in my head, they would run the other way. There's no way they would love me. And so I've hidden for a good part of my life. And, and the danger in this is that the next time me or you, if we're in that place, we're confronted with the opportunity to decide to sin or to obey God, we're much more likely to sin because, man, I'm, I'm damaged goods, right? Uh, can't get much worse than me. Might as well. I've already screwed everything up. You know the first time we meet Paul? Um, he wasn't always Paul. He used to be called Saul. And it's in the book of Acts, if you want to read it, the first few chapters. And the book of Acts is amazing. It's the story of the, the growth of the church and there's this amazing guy named Stephen. He's a leader. And uh, they were giving out food at this food shelter. Uh, and there's some racism going on. Um, so certain race was getting looked over. So uh, these guys go to the apostles and say, hey, uh, we need someone to sort this out, to serve tables, to make sure this race gets the food. And the apostles are like, uh, we just got the Holy Spirit. We got to write the Bible. So we're kind of busy. Uh, so if you can um, have somebody else do that, that'd be great. It's just a menial task, just waiting tables. And so Stephen raises his hand, this leader, this amazing guy. And decides to serve. He spends his days uh, waiting on tables. And then he gets the opportunity to speak in front of the Sanhedrin, uh, which is the ruling council of the Jews. Amazing opportunity. So he goes in and, of course, preaches the whole gospel. Now, unfortunately, part of that gospel is that the Jews killed Jesus. And so the Jews kind of stop him there in the story. They're like, oh, this is great. You know, God wants to save us. But are you blaming us for killing Jesus? He's like, well... You did kind of horrifically murder the only begotten son of Jesus, but you know, he had to die. They don't like that. Uh, so they take Stephen out into the street, 
and uh, they throw their coats down at this guy's feet, and then they stone Stephen to death. Not like, not like stone him to death, not Colorado style. But like they take, they take boulders and rocks, and they, they crush him to death. And so Stephen dies, and then Luke, uh, the way he tells the story, the camera kind of pans over to the coats, and it pans up to the guy that's standing by the coats, and it's, it's Saul. He later becomes Paul, and he's smiling smugly, and he, he approves of this whole process. And so Paul used to be Saul. Um, his job before being an evangelist was to hunt down Christians and kill them. So he's made widows. Um, he's killed people's fathers and brothers and sons and mothers and sisters and daughters. And if he couldn't kill them on the spot or get a mob to do that, he would track them down and take them to Jerusalem and make sure they got a trial and they were executed there. This was his past life. He was into some dark stuff. I don't care what you've done in your past. It doesn't compare to Paul, but, but look at what he says. It's in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all of it, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He says, one thing I do is I forget what's behind me and I press on towards what's ahead. How can he say that? How can Paul possibly say that? It's because he knows the gospel. <laughs> he knows the gospel. He says, no matter what the, the atrocities I did, no matter how horrible my past is, the truth is Jesus died for my sins, and I can move beyond that. Do you, do you grasp that this morning? No matter what you have done in your past, all the anger and the wrath and the judgment and the hatred that God feels towards that sin, he has already poured out upon his son, Jesus Christ. Your sin has been paid for. It's in the past. And it doesn't matter what it is. And I, I don't say this lightly. I'm not saying uh, we should downplay sin. My brokenness, uh, my mistakes, that caused this horrific death of Jesus. But he died. He died so that no longer when we make a mistake or sin, we don't have to run from God or hide from him. We can run straight towards him and he will accept us. And it doesn't matter what it is. Maybe you said some words this year that hurt somebody or tore apart a relationship and you would give anything to take those words back. Maybe you, you're still struggling with a past decision to, to leave a wife or a husband or kids or, or to terminate a pregnancy. Maybe you can't quite kick your addiction to, to alcohol or pornography or, um, or drugs or eating disorder or same-sex attraction. Maybe you've gone too far with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe you can't quite get over the shame and guilt and remorse of some adultery in your past. Listen, it's in the past. Jesus Christ has paid for it. And I know it doesn't seem fair. I know it doesn't seem fair that sinful, broken me or you can just waltz into the presence of God and expect him to love us and accept us. And it's not fair, but Jesus Christ died to give us that right and that privilege. 
And when we wallow in our guilt and our shame and we, we let that stop us from pursuing God, pursuing Christ, what we're really saying is, thanks Jesus for coming to live the life I couldn't live and dying the death I should have died, but I didn't do anything. I'm positive God still hates me. But that's not true. <laughs> I know it's so hard to believe. That's why it's called amazing grace. But moments after your worst mistake, you can start again. Moments after your worst sin, you can go right into the presence of God and say, God, I'm sorry, please forgive me. He's like, it's okay. It's been dealt with. Let's start again. And you can do that this moment. You can do that this month, this whole year. Because his mercies are new every single day. You can start again. So with that in mind, um, I propose that we create a new New Year's resolution list. You can keep the marathon on there. Uh, keep the reading the books. Uh, please keep the flossing and the brushing teeth thing. Um, but I propose that we add a new top three. Uh, number one. Let us all realize that our accomplishments, our deeds, uh, they're worthy to be laid aside. And let's admit that we need a Savior. <laughs> all right. Number one, admit that we need a Savior. Number two resolution, let's take all that shame, all that guilt from the past, and let's leave it there. Let's leave it at the foot of the cross. And number three, let's all pursue knowing and exp experiencing the transforming power of Jesus in 2015. And I guarantee it'll be your best year ever. And how do we do this? How do we go about doing this? Well, we got the five goals y'all hear about every single weekend here. Uh, those are a good place to start. Um, but we as a church staff also, we tried to, to kind of front load the new year to kind of get you off on the right path. So we got some good stuff going on. Um, if you struggle with kind of understanding the Bible or um, some women's issues or men's issues or with uh, uh, suffering, uh, with guilt or with divorce, we have all of our classes starting uh, January 28th. Check out our class page. They're Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays. They're starting soon. Uh, maybe this year uh, you just kind of failed as a parent. You just missed it. That's why we're having our parent summit. Um, and it's going to be Saturday, February 9th. We've got a great speaker coming out, amazing breakout sessions. You get to connect with parents and just, just start this year off right. Uh, kind of in the same vein. Uh, we have Kid City coming up this Friday. I will be there with my little ones. Uh, it starts at 6.30. There's this pre-party kickoff. And then 7 o'clock. And how cool is it that you can uh, pursue knowing and experiencing Christ with your kids right beside you? I think that's awesome. Uh, maybe it's uh, your time to, to partner with us. Maybe it's time to make hope your home. And if that's the case, we have Discovery. Uh, it's on Saturday, January 12th. And you can find all this stuff on the webpage. Uh, but hear this. These are just tools. These are just tools. These are just things that we provide for you as you seek to experience and be transformed by Christ this year. So we can end there. <laughs> Ball's in your court. Go get it. Uh, but I know that a lot of people here are saying, that's awesome. I want to know Christ. I want to pursue him. I, I admit I need a Savior. I want to leave that shame and that guilt. But in the back of your mind, there's this apprehension. There's a little bit of fear. And you're thinking, do I really have what it takes? I mean, I remember 2012, I remember 2011 and 2010. Do I really have what it takes? Can I really do this all year long? Do I really have it in me to do this? So let me relieve some of that fear and apprehension. No way. Nope. Nope. You ain't got it in you. 
You can't do this on your own, but God can. God absolutely can. How does Paul put it? Um, He says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I press on to take hold of that, of knowing Christ. I press on and strain to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has already taken hold of me. And it's this beautiful picture um, I saw kind of come to life this week. Uh, during the holidays, uh, we have uh, lots of candy around. And uh, we were new parents, I guess, three and four-year-olds, so we leave it on the countertop. And uh, so <laughs> nine o'clock one morning, I hear a rustling in the kitchen, and my three-year-old is like slumped over in a sugar coma with like 14 candy bars and like chocolate over her face. So we move the candy to the top of the fridge, which is will, where it will stay from now on. And uh, a few times during the day, Reese will get this um, little like foot-high um, stool that she uses for washing her hands, and she'll put it up next to the fridge, and she'll be reaching and reaching and reaching. She's still like six feet away from it. And so I walk in. I'm like, Reese, you want a treat? She's like, yes, Daddy, I do. I do want treat. And so uh, she's straining. She reaches a little hand towards that chocolate, and I wrap my arms around you, and it's within, it's within my reach, but she just can't get it. So I wrap my arms around her, and I lift her up, and she gets that treat, and we, uh, she sits in my lap, and we enjoy some chocolate together. Uh, and that, that's the picture that Paul is painting here. That when God sees us straining and striving towards that goal of knowing Christ and being transformed by him, and when we see us reach out to take hold of that, the God of the universe wraps his arms around us and carries us towards that destination. That as he sees us fighting and struggling and straining against sin and addiction and pride and gossip, that the God of the universe fights right alongside us. God says, um, God's word says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And that's a promise. And Jesus says that no one can take my sheep from me. (laughs) That all the brothers and sisters that God has given me, I will bring home safely. So we're not in this alone. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, we thank you so much for your word. It's truth. And we thank you that we, um, we serve a God who knows us individually. <laughs> you don't, you're not an aloof God. You don't hold us to this high standard that you know we can never attain, but you, you, you come down to where we are. And you just warn us, hey, if you pursue all these performance things, man, it's useless and I just want to love you without your performance. And, and you warn us of kind of the dangers of shame and guilt. So I thank you for that, that you're with us. God, I pray for those of us, the type A's here, that, that just find our identity and the work of our hands. I pray that 2013 would be just a year of rest. That we would rest, not in our performance, but in, in Jesus' performance for us. We would recognize you truly do love us just as we are. Not a future version of us, but us right now. And God, I pray for those of us that are, feel that guilt and that shame that have been hiding from you and hiding from others for many years. I pray that this minute, <laughs> that this hour, we would take that, that first step, no matter how uncomfortable it is, that first step towards you in a long time. That somehow we could believe you love us. 
And God, I pray that uh, you would just be with us in the coming months, that we would know and feel the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Uh, that we would just always remember that, that he that is in us is stronger than he that is in the world. That you're fighting for us. That you're with us always. You're strong. You're wise. You know the way. So we just commit 2013 to you and we trust you. It's in Christ's name.